This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. There seems to be no end in sight to the almost daily occurrences of mass shootings in the United States. This has become such an everyday tragedy that we've almost become numb to the grief and loss that accompanies it. Almost. Every time we hear that innocent people just going about their daily lives, students, teachers, churchgoers, shoppers, and others, have been killed in another mass shooting, it rips our hearts out once again. Even though I cover true crime on a daily basis, I am no less affected by the senselessness and loss that these stories bring. So this week, I decided to change it up a little bit and bring you one case of hope that ends not in heartbreak and loss, but in triumph. In this story, a young girl becomes an unlikely hero when she acts upon a hunch, derailing an evil plot before it could begin. This is Real Life Heroes, the foiled De Anza College shooting. January 29, 2001, was by all accounts a pretty typical day in the San Francisco Bay Area. A thick layer of clouds had persisted all night, and there was a brief misting that morning, but the sky cleared by breakfast, and the temperate California sunshine broke through. The temperature rose into the mid-50s that day, light sweater weather, and 18-year-old Kelly Bennett was working an ordinary shift processing photos at a Long's Drug Store in the Berryessa neighborhood of San Jose. In 2001, having photos developed at a physical photo lab was just about obsolete. In a few years, digital photography would replace most film cameras, so having photos developed would become a thing of the past. But in this pre-digital era, people working in photo labs still processed the pictures you took and were the first to see these images. I know how strange that seems to people under a certain age, but yes, there was a time not long ago that your own private photos were seen by strangers. Those of us old enough to remember those days also know it was the eyes of those strangers, the people who worked at photo labs, that largely spawned the instant Polaroid photography trend of the late 20th century. Unless you were a photographer who knew your way around a darkroom, the only way to take photos of things deemed inappropriate or illegal was with Polaroids that no photo technician would ever see. Instant photos left something to be desired, though, quality-wise, and the technology proved to be a novelty. In 2001, most people were still using standard film, developed by a photo lab. Kelly Bennett was the person standing at the shoot that idle Monday morning when the photos came out of the machine at Long's Drug Store. Upon first viewing these particular images, I can only imagine that Miss Bennett may not have originally recognized what she was seeing. Pipe bombs with long red fuses nails and screws taped to their tubes, a sawed-off semi-automatic rifle, another SKS rifle, a cut-down shotgun, and a cache of ammunition. Kelly Bennett didn't know what to make of the situation. Could this be some kind of joke or an ill-advised prank? She decided to call the customer who had dropped off the film. She got no answer. 
the order ticket showed the customer had chosen 24-hour processing, and the 24-hour mark was just about 30 minutes away. He could arrive to pick up his photos at any minute, Kelly realized. Kelly called her father, who happened to be a police officer. She described what she had discovered. He urged her to call 911, and she did. Minutes later, officers Paul Hamblin and Cassandra Lansbury of the San Jose Police Department arrived and spoke with Kelly Bennett. The officers had done a quick background check on the man who had dropped off the film and now had a description of who they were looking for. They positioned themselves in front of the security monitors located in the drugstore's warehouse and waited. Within minutes, Officer Hamblin saw a person matching the suspect's description captured on the closed-circuit security camera. Their suspect, a young man named Al de Guzman, had just entered the store. An excellent 2002 article by Alex Ionidis for Metro Silicon Valley Weekly News details what happened next. At around 6.15 p.m., a red 1991 Chevy Blazer pulled up to the store, and de Guzman stepped out. Bennett was back in the warehouse with the officers when de Guzman, a small-framed, shy-looking young man with short-cropped hair, approached the counter. Officer Hamblin was pretty sure the man was their suspect. Kelly Bennett was less certain, though, and she was nervous as she approached the counter. But then, stepping forward, the young man offered his receipt. After taking the piece of paper and glancing at the name, Bennett walked by her co-worker, Michelle Howd, and the look on Bennett's face said it all. Howd asked Bennett in a whisper if she wanted her to go and tell the police. Yes, Bennett anxiously whispered back. 18-year-old Kelly found herself with the task of stalling a man who had photographed himself with enough weapons to stage a massacre, while her co-worker tried not to run to the back room. The officer emerged from the warehouse, and when they were within 15 feet of de Guzman, he glanced in their direction, then turned and quickly walked away down one of the store's aisles. Officer Hamblin dashed down a parallel aisle in the drugstore and intercepted de Guzman at the other end. The young man was polite and put up no resistance. Hamblin patted him down, escorted him to the rear of the store, and an hour later, Al de Guzman was taken into custody. Many questions needed to be answered. First and foremost, who was El de Guzman and what was he planning to do with the weapons in his photographs? The arrest and ensuing investigation revealed an extremely disturbing private life for the young college dropout. Al Joseph de Guzman was the son of Filipino immigrants who moved to California in 1968, where El was later born in Santa Clara County. He would later say that his relationship with his parents wasn't tumultuous, but it couldn't be described as close either. Quote, I never really talked to them much. We didn't fight or not get along. It's just that as long as I gave the air of normalcy, they left me alone. As long as I kept my grades up and that sort of thing, he said. A court document from 2003 details the arsenal found in de Guzman's bedroom, in the same house he shared with his parents and little sister. Bomb squad officers searched de Guzman's room in his parents' home. They found the following. A duffel bag containing a propane bomb, 18 propane canisters tied together in three groups of six, with pipe bombs inserted into the gaps, and electric fuses rigged between the bombs and model rocket engines. A grocery bag containing 34 pipe bombs with bands of nails, screws, and BBs attached. And a backpack containing 19 Molotov cocktails. They also found a battery and two clocks 
that had been combined to act as an electric timing device for the propane bomb. They further found a semi-automatic rifle with 400 rounds of ammunition, a sawed-off shotgun with 133 shotgun shells, a sniper rifle with 100 rounds of ammunition, a sawed-off rifle with over 300 rounds of ammunition, and a bolt-action rifle. In addition to the cache of weapons, investigators found extensive journals and photographs and online writings that painted a picture of a very hopeless, angry, and disturbed young man. If you ask any 10 people when they remember first becoming aware of the mass shooting as a concept, you'll get a number of answers. Your older folks are going to say Charles Whitman in the clock tower at the University of Texas at Austin in 1966. Some might say they never imagined school shooters could be a thing until they read the author Stephen King's 1977 novel, Rage, which he wrote under his pseudonym Richard Bachman. The novella tells the story of a student who kills his teacher and takes his classmates hostage with a gun. It's one of Stephen King's many novels, but one in which the author, understandably, refuses to comment upon these days. When the Columbine High School shooting occurred in 1999, some people pointed the finger at Stephen King. Columbine. It's just one word, and it's synonymous with the phenomenon of mass shootings. When you say school shooting, most people think Columbine. And it's ironic to think that anyone could believe that Stephen King or Charles Whitman would be the first to invent the concept or carry out the act of mass shooting, because it goes back much, much further than that. There was Principal Leonard O. Redden, a veteran suffering from PTSD, who on February 2, 1960, opened fire on a crowd of 30 students at William Reed Elementary in Indiana. And Howard Unruh, an ex-military man who shot 13 people in Camden, New Jersey, in September 1949, a case I covered on this podcast in Season 1, Episode 34. And the list continues. Verlin Spencer shot four people to death at Pasadena Public School on May 9, 1940. And Wesley Crow, a professor, shot and killed five on June 4, 1936, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We can continue backward in time and we'll discover more killing sprees beginning with one of the first recorded mass shootings in America. In 1891, a man opened fire with a double-barreled shotgun at Parson Hall Schoolhouse in Liberty, Mississippi. It's not rap music or TV or movies or even video games that were the catalyst for these atrocities. Mass shootings have existed long before any of those things. We could say it's the human condition. For more than 130 years, mass shootings have been a real concern in North America. However, for Alda Guzman, Columbine was a fascination. Again, from the Metro article. Police noted de Guzman's apparent admiration for the Columbine killers. In April 1999, teenagers Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold killed 13 people and themselves at Colorado's Columbine High School. On his website, de Guzman reportedly wrote, quote, The only thing that's real is the world of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. They knew what they had to do to change the world, and they did it. End quote. De Guzman graduated from his high school, Independence High, in San Jose, the same year that Klebold and Harris murdered their classmates and took their own lives. It appears not to occur to him that this was a privilege those cut down in their prime by his so-called heroes did not get to enjoy. According to the evidence found in de Guzman's room, 
He had meticulous plans to carry out a murderous attack at De Anza College in Cupertino, California. De Anza College is a two-year college that is widely seen as prestigious in community college circles. Steve Jobs attended De Anza and evangelized for the school in his later years. Courses are frequently considered challenging for a two-year school, and De Anza has been regularly ranked near the top nationwide for student transfers to four-year colleges and universities. My own mother took classes at the newly opened campus when I was still in grade school. My son was a student at De Anza just a year or so after de Guzman plotted his attack on the college. Located in the heart of Silicon Valley and a stone's throw from Apple Computer's iconic campus, De Anza College is a popular two-year college with a large population. Over 20,000 students and almost 1,000 full-time and part-time teachers work and study at the 112-acre campus. De Anza wasn't known as a party school or an athletic school. It was a school for people who were serious about their education and their goals. L. de Guzman's life had been going the other direction, however, and for reasons clear only to himself, de Guzman planned a Columbine-style massacre at De Anza. Police found what appeared to be detailed plans for an attack at De Anza College. Sitting on a desk at the east wall of de Guzman's bedroom was a black binder, which contained drawings, text entries, narratives, and timelines for a mass shooting at the school. De Guzman's writings painted a picture of a young man who was decidedly angry. Quote, I don't seem to care about anything anymore except having a shitload of guns, liking people who are politically incorrect, revolution, and having people get the shit kicked out of them, one entry read. De Guzman had laid out his plan to attack students at De Anza in audio recordings, journal entries on his website, and in an array of yellow sticky notes. Investigators confiscated diaries, a tape recording of what he intended to do, and maps of De Anza with post-it notes stuck to them. Written on the notes were instructions. Kill supervisors at campus center. Kill all at library. Kill fast. De Guzman's arrest was met with a feverish response by the media. Nationally, with Columbine just two years prior, the notion that a teenager at a photo lab foiled an act of mass murder was just too juicy to ignore. Kelly Bennett did the talk show circuit, including The Today Show and Good Morning America, where she was hailed as a hero. According to the police, de Guzman's plan was to be carried out the following day after his trip to the photo lab. They believed Kelly Bennett's 911 call had foiled de Guzman's plan on the eve of the attack. It's almost a cliché to hear neighbors and friends of those accused of shocking crimes state to curious reporters, he was so quiet, and that's not the neighbor I know, after these kind of events come to light. It's also human nature, I suppose, to believe in the best of those people closest to us. In Elda Guzman's case, however, there seemed to be an unusual number of people who were completely dumbfounded that he could do the things that he was accused of planning. One neighbor was quoted as saying, We were just so very surprised. The de Guzmans were such a regular family. Al was such a regular little boy, the silent type maybe, but nobody expected this. De Guzman had been on his high school's yearbook staff at Independence High. In his senior year, he was one of five editors assigned to work on creating and publishing the high school yearbook, The American. Anne Akers, a yearbook publishing rep, met with de Guzman's yearbook staff once a week during his junior and senior years of high school. Akers said, quote, You could make a list of kids who might not make it to adulthood, whose tempers might get them into trouble, 
or who might scam someone and get caught at some point, she said. Al was none of those kids. He was a great kid. Paul Ender, de Guzman's yearbook director, said, He was a good leader, very cooperative. The kids respected him. He would not have been editor if he did not work well with other people, cared about what he was doing, or cared about others. It was not just my decision to make him editor. It was a group decision, Ender said. The program attracted the cream of the crop at Independence High School. Many of the kids came from the Honors English program. They came to me smart, end quote. During the trial, even Kelly Bennett was sympathetic. As reported by sfgate.com, during an emotionally charged moment, Bennett became upset when asked to identify de Guzman. I need to take a break. Excuse me, the tearful clerk said, rushing from the courtroom holding her stomach. When she was later asked what upset her, she replied, I feel bad, and to sit here and point out who did that, it hurts me a lot. I have a heart unlike others, she added, and even though people do wrong, sometimes it's not their fault. We could argue all day whether Elda Guzman deserves any sympathy from anyone, but this story would not be complete without acknowledgement of Elda Guzman's mental illness. It was after his incarceration that de Guzman was officially diagnosed with clinical depression, but he said he'd known something was wrong with his mood since he was a teenager. That's when my grades started to go down. The depression was on and off and lasted until my arrest. In some ways, the arrest was good, de Guzman said during an interview from prison. It helped me deal with my depression, he said, looking on the bright side of his prison sentence. Doctors prescribed de Guzman antidepressants in jail, and the would-be shooter felt it made a difference. I feel better now. The volume on the negative thoughts and self-hate is turned down, he said. Despite the opinions of doctors, as is so often the case with those who exhibit sociopathic and narcissistic traits, de Guzman was reluctant to admit the depth of his dysfunction. He still had pride. He was okay with being described as depressed, but he bristled when the media characterized him as mentally ill. I wouldn't call it a mental illness, he said. That is an unfortunate distinction for Elda Guzman, since the American legal system offers certain protections for people with mental illness, but those protections aren't as robust for depression. Investigators had uncovered a mountain of damning evidence against the young man, and perhaps with a conviction that was amplified by the relatively recent Columbine event, presented it all at trial. A tape recorder found by investigators contained a statement recorded by Elda Guzman titled, A Message to You, the World, Before I Die. According to a legal filing, it began... It's actually Monday, January 29th, the year 2001, and tomorrow I plan to die. Actually, I plan to kill before I die. I do this with a clear head. I consider myself very sane. Well, not even sane. I don't like to consider myself insane or sane or within the boundaries of humanities, just statuses, and all their, I would say, boundaries that are labeled, their classifications. I consider myself evolved. I have attained self-awareness and I really consider myself above the mind of every person, humanity. I don't consider myself human. I don't consider myself homo sapien. I consider myself homo superior, Superman, Nietzsche and Superman Ubermensch, actually able to make decisions beyond regular bonds, norms and mores of society. End quote. On its surface, it seems like a pretty gross statement of ego and arrogance, indifferent to the value of human life, and an inability to empathize with others. It does, to me at least, sound over-the-top to a degree that suggests mental illness. I mean, I'll leave the diagnosis to the professionals, but homo superior, above the mind of every person? That sounds like a little bit more than depression. That sounds like a deeper mental illness or personality disorder, 
And that's just my amateur view on it. Incidentally, you may recall this warped philosophy that was first adopted from Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of Superman, or in German, Übermenschen, by Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Leopold and Loeb, like L. de Guzman almost 80 years later, determined that they were in this class of individuals who possessed superior intellectual ability, and for this reason were exempt from the rules of norms ordinary individuals had to follow. In 1924, 19-year-old Leopold and 18-year-old Loeb decided to test out this theory by kidnapping and killing a 14-year-old distant relative to see if they could get away with it. Alda Guzman had some very strange ideas about whom he should emulate or consider as role models, but I digress. De Guzman's recording continued, quote, Tomorrow, I'll be killing as many people as I can. I hope that my first bomb, a very large propane tank bomb, I think I'm pretty sure, 18 actually small pipe bombs, or what was it? 18 propane tank bombs, pipe bombs that I can actually detonate and puncturing them and igniting them. I hope that bomb kills actually anywhere from 10 to 30 people. I'm leaving this because I'd just like all you to know what I thought about your world and what I'll be doing tomorrow with my guns, my bombs, and just my weaponry." End quote. In October of 2002, Al Guzman, now 20 years old, was sentenced on two charges, possession of a destructive device in a public place, and possession of a destructive device with intent to cause harm. He received seven years in prison. De Guzman had been facing more than 100 years of prison time on more than 100 counts, but the court ruled he should be sentenced on single counts for each type of explosive device versus every individual device, which is how he was originally charged. There was considerable outrage that de Guzman's sentence could be so dramatically reduced, considering how catastrophic his plan could have been. In 2003, Santa Clara County prosecutors succeeded in having de Guzman's sentence overturned, and an extended period of legal wrangling ensued. The court reinstated 108 counts that had originally been thrown out. Finally, in June of 2004, de Guzman's new sentence was handed down, 80 years in prison. Perhaps one of the most contentious questions regarding L. de Guzman is, was he really going to carry out the act? De Guzman's defense attorney made a point of reading his client's final journey entry at trial. These journal entries were made right before his arrest. One read, I'm going to take these photographs to Long's drugstore and get them developed. I am probably going to get caught. Oh well. Does the journal entry indicate to you that L. de Guzman wanted to get caught? Let's not forget, de Guzman was on the yearbook staff in high school. He was the editor of the yearbook staff in a year when it was recognized for excellence. Remember when we talked about the photo lab at the beginning of the episode? Alda Guzman was an accomplished yearbook photographer and could have developed his own film easily. So why did he take it to the lab? Was he hoping to get caught? Feel free to tell me what you think on our social media channels after the show. In fairness, it should be noted that de Guzman said again and again that he meant what he said. He repeated his criminal intent later in his recorded diatribe. Quote, Let me reiterate that I want to kill as many people as I can. I don't care how I die or what happens to me. Just as long as when I put a bullet through my head, I've killed at least 20, 20 humans. 
With Al de Guzman behind bars for 80 years, it would be a simple matter to ask him to participate in the sit-down jailhouse interview to ask the following questions. Were you really going to do it? Did you want to get caught? Except Al Joseph de Guzman is no longer with us. Wednesday, August 4, 2004, barely a month after his resentencing, Al de Guzman was found hanging in his cell at Folsom State Prison. He left a note, but the contents have never been disclosed. We can only assume that the prospect of spending 80 years in prison was too much to bear. In the years that followed, the thwarted Dianza massacre faded from memory like an old photograph as new shootings continued to make the headlines. Those who remember the event often express sympathetic sentiments for de Guzman. They say they wished he'd been able to get the help he needed. Even Kelly Bennett, the protagonist of this almost disaster, expressed sympathy for Al de Guzman during his trial. It's heartwarming and at the same time somewhat puzzling to have sympathy for a would-be school shooter. But in the end, humans have both the capacity for great compassion as well as for extreme evil. Kelly Bennett understood that, and she got a cruel reminder when she was diagnosed in 2010 with a rare form of cancer in the form of a tumor at the base of her skull. The San Jose Mercury News reported on how her community held a number of fundraisers to support their hero. Kelly literally saved dozens, if not hundreds, of lives, said San Jose police officer Mike Roybal. This guy was really going to do a number on the school, and now here she is struggling for her life. At last report, Kelly had relocated to Minnesota and was employed as a server and bartender. We've been unable to find any record of Kelly Bennett after 2010. Join us all in hoping that she made a full recovery and is out there listening to Once Upon a Crime right now and restored to complete health. Thank you, Kelly Bennett, for your willingness to get involved, an unselfish act that saved others. Most agree Alda Guzman's motivations were complicated and not easily recognized by even those closest to him. He led something of a secret life by virtue of his quiet, reserved nature. He isolated himself and communicated very little of anything meaningful to anyone around him, just the arrogant and violent rhetoric he shared on his blog and in his recordings. What was Elda Guzman's motivation for this planned attack? We don't know, but depression was part of it, and I'm sure an expert in this field of psychology would have a lot to say about his delusions of grandeur and narcissism. To any degree that our research team has been able to determine, Elda Guzman's anger appeared to be a generalized intolerance of others, rather than a collection of grudges or an incel-like resentment as we've discussed on previous episodes. As far as anyone knows, there were no red flag events in Elda Guzman's life. No recent breakups, no recent firing from a position, etc. He did allude to some resentment over not getting into the colleges of his choice, due to a fraction of a point in his grade point average, and some have suggested that this was the motivation for de Guzman's planned assault at De Anza, but he didn't express this directly. In the end, we're left with only questions. The only thing for which we can give thanks, that Kelly Bennett saved the lives of untold De Anza College students, is tempered by the bittersweet knowledge that Al de Guzman couldn't save his own. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I felt we needed to hear a more positive story and celebrate a real-life hero like Kelly. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back with another episode in the series, Picture Perfect Murder, next Monday. 
Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. This episode was written by Troy Larson, who also provided additional research. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Additional support and final audio mix for this episode were provided by Studio 71. Until next time, be good to one another.